0: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at Chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
1: VTW Group. No purchase necessary. where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. Welcome to episode 117 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So first, we want to thank everyone who has left us a review on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you're using to listen. If you haven't already done so, it would really help us out if you could leave us a review. That's what gets us on the charts and noticed. We also would like to thank our new supporters on Patreon. We hope you're enjoying the 58 episodes we have available there, and we will name you at the end of the episode. And John has worked on his pronunciation, so it should go a little bit more smoothly this time. If you would like to join us on Patreon, you could do so by visiting patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. We would also like to thank our sponsors at the top of the show. Best Fiends, Splendid Spoon, and Athena Club. Remember, supporting them, or even just checking out what they have to offer, helps support us tremendously. Okay, John, I have a bit of a doozy for you today, so I'm going to need you to fully prepare yourself for this episode. Oh,
2: I'm here. I'm ready.
1: Our case today is going to take us all over the country as an accomplished filmmaker gets sucked into the intrigue of a New Age cult in the 1990s. But just when he realizes he may be better off without the group, he went missing. The search for him lasted three years, when his body was found in a shallow grave. And now the question was, which member of the cult did it?
0: Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are
1: all evil in some form or another. Are
0: we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so.
1: Alan Ross grew up in the Chicago suburb of Naperville with his parents, older brother, and twin brother Brad. His mother, to whom Alan was very close, was a nurse who later became a social worker. Alan's father was a scientist. His relationship with his mother and brothers was very easy as Alan was so lovable. However, he struggled with his father, who, as his twin brother later described in an interview for Dateline in 2014, just struggled to be a good communicator. I think that's something that's probably true of all fathers.
2: <laughs> I want to say, yeah, like, I mean, name me, name me one person that have hasn't had a dad like that at some point.
1: Right. It, it, could,
2: you know, it can improve, but, I mean, to some extent, right?
1: Yeah, it's just the way it is sometimes. Yeah. So the Ross family was deeply rooted in their middle-class conservative views, which is why Alan always felt as if he didn't fit in. He had been described as a creative, free thinker who knew that from the first time he held a camera, he wanted to be a filmmaker. He was known to always have a camera in his hand, and as soon as he was old enough, he chose to move to Chicago and try his luck with his passion. Alan experienced early success and gained a professional and creative reputation on the scene. Eventually, he went on to work full-time as an editor on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And this job he had took him all around the world. So he was basically living his dream. Brad said that his brother was a free spirit, always off on an adventure. And it's pretty easy when your job is basically an adventure. But that Alan always found a way back home. Alan loved his family very much and took seeing them, despite his hectic schedule and ever-changing filming locations, very seriously. Especially his birthday, which, of course, he shared with his twin brother. If Alan could not be in Chicago for their birthdays, he always had a postcard sent to Brad to arrive before or on their birthday. He even managed to do so when he got malaria in Africa
2: geez that's dedication huh
1: (laughs) i know now i feel guilty because sometimes like birthday cards to my family members are late if this guy can do it with malaria i should like step up my game you
2: gotta step up
1: (laughs) so back at home alan's reputation in the film industry grew when he helped found the artist cooperative and film society of chicago filmmakers which helped struggling artists find resources to use on their projects so it seemed that even though Alan did find success, he still like wanted to help everybody out, which is really nice and I'm sure is pretty rare in the art world because when you get ahead, you want to stay ahead. So helping others isn't gonna help you do that. So I think it's a testament to his character about this, you know, society that he formed.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Those that knew him within that circle described him as an eccentric intellectual. He was passionate about life and had an unquenchable thirst for knowledge and life experiences he was always seen in his signature large frame glasses his thrift store clothes and his high top converse sneakers
2: you know what's crazy when you describe him it gives me this really good mental picture of his character without even like all you had to tell me was like what he was wearing and like
1: and that he's a filmmaker and
2: exactly to kind of know how he is i don't know if that's weird like what i'm getting the general idea that i'm getting here is he's a giver and that's what you get with free spirits like free-spirited people they, they they're they see more than just themselves as being a priority so like for him to like do all these things and give back it's um
1: painting a really clear picture yeah
2: yeah exactly like It's because like somebody like him doesn't want to wear these big ticket items or flashy stuff. He just wants to wear, you know, uh, you know, regular clothes that he doesn't really care about. Like, it's it's interesting.
1: Yeah, I think that because Alan's personality was so genuine, it's so easy to describe him. And then it's so easy to get a picture of who he was. Yeah. So at the age of 33, Alan suffered his first real loss with the death of his mother. He took her passing very hard. At the time, he was alone, and he chose to travel and reflect on his life, his loss, and the meaning of it all. And it's hard when a parent dies. I think we've spoken about this before on the show. It kind of makes you question your own mortality for the first time, maybe ever. And that's what happened here with Alan. Eventually, just as his brother said, Alan came home. And he began dating someone in 1986. And together they dabbled in the occult, something I'm sure he found on his journeys around the world and was a little bit more connected to because of the loss of his mother. And he called it the mysteries. Nothing serious, but just a fascination with the paranormal and different forms of spirituality. His relationship with this woman that started in 1986 is going to end in 1992 but the two chose to remain close friends. It seemed as if Alan was still exploring the world of the paranormal and spirituality because he was searching to fill a void that was created when his mother passed away. And it was his ex-girlfriend that suggested he attend a seminar that was being hosted in a hotel near the O'Hare Airport in Chicago. The woman, a spiritual leader from Oklahoma named Linda Green, Used pendulums for spiritual awareness.
2: I don't know how to feel about pendulums and uh, awareness and stuff like that. But what I will say is it's so interesting, like you said, so the loss kind of kicked this into high gear where he never thought about the occult or whatever, the other side and spirits and ghosts and stuff like that. So it's really interesting how loss sometimes, like some people can kind of, I don't want to say snap out of it, but they can move on and, and function. whereas others. They can't, and they need to find outlets to fill those gaps. Yeah. But, like, I feel like sometimes it's almost like drugs. It's like people start out with marijuana, let's just say, for example. I don't mean, like, a dad right now, but I'm just okay. saying, like, <laughs> you know, like, you start out with marijuana. That's your entry drug. And then the next thing you know, you go, go down this rabbit hole, and now you're, like, shooting up. Right. So it's, like, it's interesting. So this is kind of the same way spiritually, though. He's go, His entry here is... Like, you know, the loss of his mom getting into, like, the other side with pendulums.
1: Paranormal. And then all of a sudden, boom, pendulums.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of weird.
1: Yeah. And I think that was um, going to help him answer that question of, like, kind of what is the meaning of life? Why are we here? What can I do to make my existence on this planet better? And he's, like, kind of seeking that knowledge through spirituality. And that's what's going to lead him to Linda Green. So Alan chose to attend the seminar because it sounded interesting to him. He listened as Linda taught him and the others in the room about the ancient practice of dowsing. So let's get into what that is. Dowsing has its origins in the Middle Ages. It's where occultists would use either a forked piece of wood and the wood had to be hazelwood, rowan, or willow. Now, they could use that wood or they would use a metal rod to detect water in the ground. Or in some cases, they would look to find minerals or treasures. But either way, they're trying to seek something that they cannot find with their naked eye. So it really was considered to be like folk magic as the fork, stick or rod was supposed to vibrate if it encountered whatever the holder was in search of. And dowsing actually was something that Martin Luther um, addressed. And uh, guys, this is Martin Luther from the Protestant Reformation, not Martin Luther King Jr. Don't make the same mistake my students do. <laughs> they I mean, always get confused. Great
2: man, but not the same person. <laughs> Hundreds of
1: years later, they, they look a little different. Um, so Martin Luther is going to state that the practice of dowsing Actually, breaks the first commandment because it's use of magic. That's
2: interesting. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know enough about it to actually like know if it's real or not. I do. I have seen people do it though, like on shows and stuff. Obviously, yes. Um, but it's interesting how they move and it's like the magnetic patterns and stuff for magnetic waves or
1: I I don't know. I think I could get behind it if it's like two metals. If you're searching for a metal and then you have a metal,
2: but then you would just use a metal detector.
1: Well, now, but I mean, not in the Middle Ages. <laughs>
2: no, I know, but I'm just saying, you know, like you would be, you know, 2021, you wouldn't see somebody outside with dowsing rods trying to find precious coins and metals.
1: No, you. I mean, you might, but it, it wouldn't be common. Right. Now, dowsing has changed through time, so that's what it was used for in the Middle Ages. But if you think about it, the basic principle is you're you're using this rod to search for something to give you an answer as to where something is. So the way dowsing is going to develop and change is that it becomes, you're going to hold um, a pendulum. So some type of, and it could be anything, could be um, a metal object, it could be a crystal, but it's hanging on two strings and you're going to ask a question and the pendulum is going to swing to give you the answer to your question now of course to address a question you have to be swinging this pendulum over a chart and the chart is supposed to be reflective of the questions that you're asking the pendulum okay so that is the practice of dowsing and how it's changed over time and that's what dowsing was to linda green And now there are two theories that accompany the practice of dowsing. First is that the subconscious is what causes in the past the vibrations to take place because you are actually shaking the rod or the branch or you are causing your pendulum to swing a certain way because your subconscious wants the answer to be something. Okay. Okay, that's one theory. And then, of course, the second theory is that it's the universe, it's the spirits that are guiding the rod to either vibrate or the pendulum to swing a certain way. So those are the two theories. And Linda Green in her seminar is going to tell the group that in order to live a harmonious life with the universe, that they should really refer to dowsing charts for a lot of the decisions they make and that an individual should trust the universe more than they should their own critical thinking.
2: I mean, that's pretty interesting. Imagine that you woke up and you had a Ouija board in front of you every day and you dangled this above it.
1: Well, it's not a Ouija board. Like, you're given a chart.
2: Oh, oh. And the
1: chart's in the form of a circle.
2: Oh, okay. And
1: over time, the pendulum stops swinging and points in the direction or goes over what the answer is.
2: Okay, uh, good clarification.
1: Oh no, yeah, just uh, well, I'm your I, I mean, I today. was going to make
2: a joke. I mean, I probably shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway. You go for you it. You know, imagine just waking up and you have this little pendulum chart, and it's like, okay, I'm on Weight Watchers. Should I eat this bag of chips? And like, let you use this for every day of. But the it's week? your
1: subconscious, and it always says yes. It
2: just says yes. Yeah, yeah you just eat it. I like that you <laughs> finished my joke.
1: <laughs> oh, sorry, John.
2: But okay, it works. I'm just eager to tell the story. I know. I'm
1: sorry. I apologize. You know,
2: know, it is interesting though that like people would actually do that. Yeah. But it's like, it's almost like the power of suggestion. You you go to the meeting and you see this person. I'm sorry, not meeting. Whatever. Gathering.
1: Seminar. Seminar.
2: And you watch this person live by this and you think it works for them. And then you go and do it because you think that this is going to work for you.
1: I think it's also the way the message is projected. Like Linda Green was super confident in what she was saying and she seemed to be at peace and harmony with the world so Alan was immediately taken by this idea this practice and by the woman herself he thought her message was fascinating and he was interested in dowsing and wanted to kind of try it himself so he made the decision to attend more of her seminars and lectures many of which were in the area where she lived, which is Guthrie, Oklahoma. Little is known about the origins of Linda Green, but she did have a nursing background. We don't know what led her down the road of spiritual healing, but I feel like it's par for the course when you're talking about a cult leader, because that's what Linda Green becomes. Linda is passionate about what she is saying, And when she talks at her seminars, she speaks as if she is saying nothing but the 100% truth on how an individual could improve their life. So if you're kind of questioning what you're doing within your existence or you're not happy with the way your life is going, you're going to listen to this woman who is very confident in her life and how great she's doing.
2: I can make the argument that she prays on the weak and she uses people's, like, you know, emotions against them. I mean, these people are, are distraught or they're hurting or they're, they're misguided or they don't know, you know, if they're doing the right thing. So this is someone that, in my opinion, is taking advantage of them. And I don't know anything else about the story, but when I hear things like that, that is what I think right away. It's not you being this great spiritual leader. You're abusing the position that you're in to gain these people into whatever you're trying to accomplish. So I don't know.
1: Yeah. And I think that that is commonplace when it comes to cults and cult leaders and them being really good at being predators in a way, being able to sense what people need and providing that for them. Right. So at first, many people sought the counsel of Linda after they attended her seminars. They would go to her to learn about dowsing to help them find the answer to questions through dowsing if they maybe didn't want to practice it themselves or they would go to her to have their auras cleansed. But many of these clients became enthralled by Linda and became her loyal followers. Her enchanted followers moved to Guthrie to be closer to her. And soon she formed an official spiritual group with them, which she called the Samaritan Foundation. They became to be known as the Samaritans. Her followers saw Linda as their mother goddess. And they truly believed that she had all the answers and she held special powers. And that was when Alan Ross met Linda and the Samaritans. So it was at that point that she had already started the foundation that he attended the seminar by the airport in Chicago. So the lectures and seminars that he listened to um, when he would start visiting Oklahoma were very different from the original one that he had attended in Illinois. This, they were more intense in Oklahoma because obviously the people that were traveling to Oklahoma were a little bit more into what she was practicing and they were becoming kind of like entrenched in her circle. So she was getting a little weirder with them. And in these seminars, Linda is going to state that dowsing should be used to make every decision in an individual's life. So it's kind of funny that you said that before because she believed that dowsing should be used to determine what you're wearing, what you're eating, what time you're going to bed. Everything that you do in your daily life should be determined by the universe through dowsing.
2: Very interesting.
1: But that's actually really fascinating because what cult leaders like to do is to take the decisions away from their members. And Linda does that kind of right away with this practice of dowsing. By saying, don't make any more decisions, the universe is going to make it for you. But really, in reality, Linda's the one who's making all the decisions because she's the one who's making the charts.
2: Oh, that's even worse.
1: I know. So Alan was an intelligent person, and he was really skeptical about the message that Linda was putting out there. But he was also interested in the idea of leading a more spiritual-based life. And like I said before, he was looking to fill a void. So for over a year, Alan drove from Illinois to Oklahoma once a month to study with Linda and the Samaritans. And each time he made the 800-mile journey, he got pulled in more and more.
2: 800 miles a month? Yeah. I mean, that's dedication.
1: I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, I know. It's intense.
2: Wow. Okay. Step into the world of power,
0: loyalty.
1: Cult leaders are master manipulators. They can read people well and decipher who a victim is from a mile away. Linda quickly zeroed in on Alan. She amended her lessons and teachings when speaking with him to bring him in. She was able to see that he was looking for answers because of the loss he suffered in his life, and she preyed upon that. Linda told Alan that together they could address his pain regarding his mother and then heal him. By tapping into his subconscious mind. After that, Alan was all in. He didn't even notice that each time he visited once a month for a 16-month period that Linda's message was taking on a new sense of urgency. She preached that her program was needed to cleanse the world and that unless mankind got behind her program or others like it, that the planet would not survive another 20 years. I can't. She's bringing, upon, she's bringing the apocalypse into this.
2: Why do they all do this? They all do this. Well, this because sense they of have just to. dread.
1: They have to do it because that's going to heighten the emotions and make it like dire consequences. So they have to get involved. They have to do what she's saying in order to either save themselves or save the world.
2: I always think it's interesting, though, that like they'll say a, a year time, like a... Like they'll say twenty years, right? And then, like, if they're still going on strong for twenty years, let's say, and then nothing ever happens, then they got to go. Oh, uh, in the nineteenth year, they got to go. Oh, I made a mistake. It's fifty. <laughs> it's fifty years from now. I just always find that so weird.
1: Well, they're master manipulators, so they're really they can change their message whenever it suits them. That's what they're good at doing. And because of this newly needed intensity, Linda urged her followers to abandon their house, and jobs. And join her and Guthrie to begin dousing to quite literally save the world. And guess what, John? What? They do it.
2: Oh, boy.
1: They all, like, sell, depending on their financial situations and living situations, but they take all of their money and they sell, like, their goods, their possessions, and they all pool the money with Linda.
2: You gotta be kidding me. No. So everyone did this? Yes. Oh, man.
1: And Alan, too.
2: That's not good.
1: So he left his friends, his family, and his successful career to be with the Samaritans. Now, Linda had found a building for everyone to live in together an old, abandoned, and condemned prison.
2: What is this, The Walking Dead? basically wait so they bought an an abandoned prison and now they're trying to convert this
1: correct and actually there are zombies involved in her apocalypse so it's yeah oh
2: my god okay
1: so she chose black jail and the name um really comes from the inmates that spent time in the prison it was built with a dark limestone so it was really dark inside and the walls are basically black so that's why it got the name black jail so black jail the building that was secured by the Colt, was built in 1892 15 years before oklahoma was even a state it's a large building on a corner lot that is made with 18 inch thick limestone and brick the building served as the first federal prison of the midwest The jail was given its name, like I said before, from the inmates, and it was built to hold 90 prisoners. The building had a solitary confinement chamber in the basement, and the inmates suffered tremendously while spending time at Black Jail. Um, In the summer, the heat was insufferable. They were unable to breathe because it got so hot in there, because the heat was unable to escape the thick, dark walls of the cells.
2: And I'm sure the sun beating down on on those on that limestone heated just it heated up. it up. Yeah. yeah.
1: And the winter, it kind of made it like an oven. Yeah. And in the winter, it was freezing cold. So you couldn't win.
2: So see, now I'm thinking, I okay. I mean, as
1: cold as Oklahoma gets, but. Right. For...
2: But still, that's like someone, you know, in Florida, they think it's a cold day. It's 70 degrees Correct. outside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, no, it is interesting because now they have this jail. I have this feeling that there's going to be some sort of torture or timeout room or something oh. because, yeah, you have jail cells and in, in solitary. So
1: Nobody likes a timeout no room. No one
2: likes to be in timeout. Um, <laughs> not also, when you're in a cult. No, especially not when you're in a cult. But I will tell you also, um, there's got to be a lot of spiritual activity in there because I'm sure people died there. I'm sure that, you know.
1: Oh, I'll get there.
2: Yeah. I'm sure that there's more to this.
1: Mm-hmm. So basically what happened was some prisoners actually did die in the jail because they either died of dehydration, overheating in the summer or the flu and respiratory infections in the winter. And there were also some inmates that were killed while in the prison, um, some that died because they were executed. So
2: bad juju, bad
1: juju. When the prison shut its doors, it was occupied for decades by a church, but the congregation left the location in the 1970s, and the black jail remained abandoned until 1991, when Linda bought it using the money of her followers, who had just left their lives all around the country. She called it the Monastery.
2: So now do we get to call it the Black Monastery?
1: Well, we can just call it the Monastery.
2: Okay. Well, actually, there's... Side note, there's um uh, one of these games that I play. It had something called the Black Monastery, and it was like uh, like like demons and ghosts and ghouls and stuff in the oh, Black right? Monastery. Interesting. Yeah, because it was like a monastery that you know was housing bad stuff.
1: Well, this one definitely so there is you go. too. That's
2: why I'm saying interesting.
1: So this location is where her spiritual warriors, as she called them, would work for her cause. It was now home to a cult.
2: That's what you're gonna want.
1: Yeah. Not what you're gonna (laughs) want in your town. The members that had joined had to pull all their money together for Linda to help pay, not only to get the jail, but also to fix it up. The building was basically in disrepair. The roof was caving in, there was no plumbing. And because of this, the Samaritans had to reconstruct showers, bathrooms, a kitchen, the roof, and they basically built bunk beds within the jail cells. So that's where they all slept. Alan's family was concerned about this move. They would miss him and they thought that what he was doing was a little bit strange. But on the other hand, Alan sometimes made choices that they wouldn't necessarily make themselves, but he always came home. So they figured this was just another example of Alan exploring. Alan also spoke to them and wrote to them, and he said that his time there at the monastery was the happiest he'd ever been. So his brother is going to reason, like, how do you argue with that? If my brother's happy, let me let him be happy and he'll come home like he always does. And that was the mindset of Alan's family at the time.
2: And that's fair. And I think a lot of people in their family would feel the same way. I mean, as no, long as he's not in that. danger, you know.
1: And I'm sure that that was how many of the families felt that had their loved one joined the Samaritans and their mission in, in Guthrie. So I'm sure you've heard this many times in all true crime stories about cults, but these cult leaders are very good. They're very good at honing into the voids that people need to be filled. Some join because they learn for a sense of belonging, a need to be a part of something larger than themselves. Maybe they don't have a lot of friends or family of their own, and those needs just aren't being met. And with a group like the Samaritans those needs would be met. Not only would they feel a sense of family and friendship, they would also feel like they're serving like a larger purpose. And purpose is another reason why people join cults. Often those who have not been able to achieve their life goals are looking for an explanation as to why that hasn't happened yet. And through attaching themselves to the new goal of a cult, they can finally be successful. Some join because of low self-esteem. And when this is sensed with cult leaders and other members of the cult, they all do a good job at what is considered love bombing or complimenting them to no end. And it works because their self-esteem is growing within the cult. So they're not going to want to leave.
2: I mean, it, it adds up. I mean, I, I get it. I just, I guess. It's, it's
1: like psychological warfare. It is. When you're in it, you don't realize you're in it.
2: Oh, that's a good point.
1: And that was how Linda Green was able to convince doctors, lawyers, accountants, and Alan Ross to be a part of her mission. She made each member of the Samaritans feel as if they had an intense personal connection with her. She knew what each member needed, and she gave it to them. One important member of the Samaritans that I would like to introduce you to is Julia Williams. Julia is very important to Linda because of her finances. Julia was the recipient of a very large trust fund, and it was through her use of her money that many things were accomplished and that Linda could continue to live comfortably without working. And in return, she made Julia a close confidant and basically gave her the title of personal assistant. So she's keeping Julia close because she needs her money and she has a lot of it.
2: Once again, praying on the weak. Yeah. She she knows she has money now. It's that's that's so bad.
1: And this is something that Julia is very proud of her title as personal assistant and she was very blindly devoted to Linda.
2: That's very sad.
1: The members of the group spent most of their time either studying the teachings of Linda listening to her lectures, or dowsing. They hung on her every word while at the monastery, and it was there that her teachings turned very dark. She said that evil forces threatened humanity, and that it was the mission of her students to dedicate their lives to her teachings. And if they were to save the world from an apocalypse, they would have to listen to her. And how's that for a mission?
2: (laughs) This is out of control.
1: So how were they to prevent the coming darkness and save the world? Intensive dousing sessions. Every day the members would have to endure rigorous sessions where they would have to ask questions the entire day. And each day they were given new charts to receive the answers on. And they would have to record all of their answers and give their answers to Linda at the end of every day. Linda believed that there were also negative entities everywhere, especially within the monastery. And through dousing, they could be removed. Now, in addition to these dousing sessions, they would also have to douse to figure out every single aspect of their day. Pretty intense.
2: It's very intense. Let me ask you this. I, I know this might sound uh tinfoil hat or people that don't believe this kind of stuff, but do you think maybe the energy of this monastery maybe has something to do with her own delusions? Like like maybe she's being affected negatively. Okay. You never know. I mean, that's this an is...
1: interesting theory that I'm yeah. gonna get into a little bit later. But
2: Yeah, I mean I would hate to put in... your
1: put your bookmark there.
2: Um yeah, I'm putting a bookmark. But I you know at the same time though we are a true crime podcast i feel like weird injecting that into this but you never know i mean if that is something oh,
1: it is 100 percent a theory in this case so you are going down the right path
2: okay all right
1: so on top of this um like every once in a while linda would just say like oh there's there's one really bad entity and they really need to like take it down kind of like final boss status You know what I mean? Yeah. And they would have to do a dousing marathon session where there was literally no breaks. And sometimes they would go on for days and they would have to like switch back and forth between praying and dousing. And obviously we know what the conditions in this building were because of the prison records. In the summer, it's sweltering and in the winter, it's freezing and they weren't allowed to sleep. They couldn't go outside to get fresh air. They couldn't have water. And during these sessions, it would be common for members of the cult to get delirious, um, sometimes pass out from exhaustion. And of course, this is when Linda would say, well, that's just the universe and the spirits coursing through them, or it's the dark entities trying to stop them. So it was very intense.
2: No, that's just because you're not getting sleep, water, or food (laughs) and air.
1: (laughs) And air. So a former member of the Samaritans said it was almost like they were hypnotized during these sessions. When that was happening, you would believe anything that she said, and our minds led us because we were on the brink of exhaustion. And that's something called engulfment of fear. And she was very good at doing that. And it was at this point that Linda also cut off her members from the outside world. She monitored the letters that they sent home and would not allow them to enter the outside world. Now, this is isolation and information control, and it's set up to only further control the members of her group. Now, to get into what you were saying, this, and this is just an interesting aside here, like you said, like, we know it's true crime podcast, but for those of you into this whole kind of thing, the Black Jail is very widely known to be a very haunted building. It has been featured on many ghost hunting shows, like Ghost Adventures. Oh, cool. So Limestone is known to be a conductor of supernatural energy. So it's interesting that she chose this building, even for dousing purposes. And, you know, some people think, like, are these the dark entities that she's speaking of? Like like you said, like, is she being affected by spirits within the building? So obviously we know she's a cult leader with an agenda, but I thought it's just an interesting aside and crazy to to add a truly supernatural aspect to this as well because the jail is known to be haunted
2: you know what's interesting too i i wanted to add this wouldn't it be something else like mind-blowing if she already knew the type of condition that this place was in and chose that place for the like on purpose and then realized that maybe the energy there would help her cause and then the conditions that she's putting everyone in like that other person said it's like when you're at the brink of exhaustion or they're just the brink of breaking down like your mind is so susceptible to anything being told to you right. so could all these things be like part of her agenda
1: i think 100 it is and i think that she chose this building on purpose for a reason
2: that's pretty crazy
1: yeah i think also it has to do with like The whole idea of, like, dousing and the limestone and, like, the energies. Like, there's a reason why she chose this prison. Very strange. Yeah. So Alan's friends and family's only communication with him during this time was through vague and cryptic postcards. On them, he only wrote about the positive experiences that he was having, but never got into any detail. He wrote things like, I'm retired from life here, or I'm out of the rat race. And through these cards, and there were many, it was clear that Alan thought that there was a higher purpose for his life, and that he really was doing good things with the Samaritans. Outside the world of the monastery, the police of Guthrie were beginning to get complaints from citizens regarding what they thought was going on at Old Black Jail, especially now that the members of the cult were no longer leaving the building. Let's also just say the very religious community also did not take too kindly to there being a cult in their town, which is completely understandable. The police chief agreed with the citizens he was not happy about what was going on. The siege at Waco had just happened five hours away, and he didn't want something like that on their hands or something like what happened with Jim Jones and the People's Temple. So he chose to have his detectives start an intelligence file on the group and monitor what they knew or could find out. You have to understand that at this point, there are... Um, Very strong feelings in this area regarding cults because the siege at Waco had just taken place. So they were paranoid about a similar situation going down. So that's why a file was started to find intelligence out.
2: I mean, you can't blame them. I mean, that was a really serious situation.
1: Yeah. So this is something, as you can imagine, Linda did not take kindly to. She grew more and more paranoid each time the detectives made attempts to talk to her members. At the same time, the control that Linda had over people had begun to change her. She was on a power trip, and her ego grew the more everyone did exactly what she instructed them to. She started testing this power by controlling their lives more and more. This, I'm sure, was fueled by her paranoia. First, she told members that they are no longer allowed to use the phone. To make them understand, she only instilled more and more fear about the coming apocalypse on them, and it was intense. And then finally, she brought sex into her game of control. She made an announcement that she was going to pair up the members and that they must be joined in a spiritual union. Now, this is another common tactic in cults, controlling people's romantic and sexual relationships within the group. Alan was paired up with a member named Jill. Jill was relatively new to the group, and Alan had only met her three days before his spiritual union with her. But she was a kind woman, and the two did really get along for the most part. But this relationship that was blossoming between them made Linda jealous.
2: Made her jealous? Yeah. She's the one that paired them.
1: I, well, John, none of this makes sense.
2: Uh, you know, cultures are so confusing.
1: <laughs> so days after their union ceremony, Linda came to the couple and told them that she was very ill. She was actually dying. And the only way she could be saved is if the couple consummated their marriage over her naked body while other members of the Samaritans watched
2: wait <laughs> mental the mental picture I don't even want to I I'm trying not even to put this together yeah so they had to have sex over this woman's body correct while everyone looked yes like 90 people
1: a lot of people yeah I would they weren't 90 at this point I mean the 90 people could fit in the jail but they the numbers weren't at 90
2: oh okay okay well still regardless even if it was 1 or 25 it doesn't really matter I, I would agree uh, on that this is weird
1: well, Alan and Jill felt obligated to do this. I mean, what could they do? Just let their cult leader die?
2: Uh, yeah, I would. And see if she's telling the truth or not.
1: Yeah. No, but see, this is at the height of everyone's <laughs> listening to Linda.
2: No, I know. I know.
1: Um, so within their controlled world, saving Linda was the only option they had. Plus, it would kind of make them saviors within the community. So they agree to this ritual. It goes downtown. And once it's completed, Linda made the announcement that she was healed.
2: Now, do you think that that was her way of to, like, humiliate them?
1: Uh, Yes, 100%. So
2: she can just continue to feel on top and control?
1: Yeah, that was was for a sense of power and also to, I guess, maybe even assert her dominance over Jill.
2: Maybe? Yeah, I don't know.
1: But nothing was ever the same after that night. Linda now seemed to take an overtly sexual interest in Alan. At some point, the two began a relationship with each other, both romantic and sexual. When this happened, Linda had to have Jill removed from the monastery, stating that her services for the Samaritans would be best served elsewhere.
2: Oh, my God.
1: I told you this was a good one.
2: Wow. Okay. Okay. So they remove Jill now.
1: No more Jill. Okay. So now like Linda and Alan are together and Alan's really happy with this at this point. I mean, Linda, his spiritual leader, the leader of this cult. I mean, they, they're not seeing it as a cult, but she had chosen him. Now this greatly elevated his status within the Samaritans. Her love was also something that was valuable to him. Um, and considering the state that everyone was in, like this was the highest honor had been bestowed upon him. That's crazy. Yeah. There's one problem, though. What's that? Linda's married.
2: Oh, my God. Oh Really? Yeah. Is it someone within the... Yes. Oh, Jesus.
1: So Linda has a husband, Dennis Green. And actually, Linda also has a son at this point. Her son is nine years old. Wow. Yeah, so he's living within the monastery as well.
2: See, that's bad, too. Yeah. Because now we have children being afflicted by whatever the hell is going on in this place. I
1: would say it's probably not a good living condition. So um, her husband, Dennis Green, had been helping his wife build up the Samaritans to what they were at that point. But Dennis was unwaveringly loyal to Linda and the mission of the Samaritans. So when she said that through dowsing, she came to find that the universe will turn Al- Alan to be together, Dennis agreed to get a divorce and Linda and Alan joined into a spiritual union together. Well, at this point, Dennis, like he remains within the Samaritans, but he doesn't really live in the monastery anymore and he takes his son out of the monastery as well, but he's still a regular member and does all the dowsing sessions with them.
2: But he doesn't live in the monastery. Correct. Well, at least that's taking place because at least now he's responsible for this child because his mother doesn't seem like she cares. She just cares about dowsing rods.
1: Yeah. Well, pendulums.
2: Oh, I apologize.
1: She, different kind of rod she's caring about right now. I guess you're right. <laughs> so prior to the divorce, when dowsing sessions or marathons would occur or lectures would be taking place, Dennis's spot had always been next to Linda facing their members They had been the couple in control. But now it was Alan up there. He was the one helping Linda run the cult. You know, you have to think, with Dennis, no matter how dedicated or loyal of a follower you are to this woman or this cause, this has to be a tremendous blow to your ego.
2: Oh, 100%. Think about it. You're large and in charge. Your wife's the... The, uh, the cult leader. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you're just uh, an, uh, an average Joe, you know? Right. That's that's hard to handle sometimes, especially how spiritually these people were and invested they were. Correct. So i tell say that, that even makes it worse.
1: And now you and your son have been basically like set aside.
2: Yeah. And you know what I would be thinking if I was Alan? If this happened to the last guy, then I'm only in this for the short term because I'm going to be just like him in the next couple of years.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think they're so entrenched in what's happening that they're, no one's thinking long term. They're only thinking, we have to do what we have to do to save this world from an apocalypse.
2: Yeah, that impending doom. Yep.
1: Yes. So with Alan at her side and her paranoia growing because of the dark entities within the monastery, a coming apocalypse, and the police coming around asking questions, things become even stranger among the Samaritans, who, by the way, were still unable to leave the monastery or have any outside contact. The dowsing charts that they were given each day become more and more bizarre and dark. Now, a dowsing chart can be simple or complicated depending on the question you're asking and what your intentions were. But the chart reflects the questions that can be asked which, in a way, controls the answers that the universe gives you, but, you know, I don't know. What do I know? I'm not hey, what do leader. we know about I'm this? not a cult leader. No. But the dousing charts that Linda was giving the Samaritans were becoming very strange. So some examples of the bizarre possible answers that Linda was giving her members included vagina clamp, lesbian lice... I didn't know lesbians had a life specific to them. Okay. And zombie mucus and death.
2: This is so strange.
1: Very weird. It's like, why would the universe intend for those to be the answers of any question you have? And no matter what question I ask, I don't want any of those things to be the answer.
2: Right, exactly.
1: Very strange. But things are going to come to a head for the Samaritans in the spring of 1995. In late March, the police make another attempt to visit the monastery, to speak to the members of the group that have not contacted their family members and have been seen in the windows of the building, but never outside. So Linda met the detectives outside before they could even approach the front door. They asked if they could just take a look inside and see how everything was going. And of course, she denied them entry into the building. They told her that their intentions were to return to the building with a search warrant because they wanted to see what was going on inside. Now this is going to send Linda into a tailspin. She spoke several times to the group, stating that the police force was working with the bad entities to try and stop them from the good work that they were doing. She created a good versus evil scenario. Us versus them between the Samaritans and the Guthrie Police Department, which was a recipe for disaster.
2: Uh, Yeah, I would say so. Um, Just a wild guess, I feel like guns and and things are going to be involved next. Am I correct? No. Oh, okay. Okay, so it wasn't necessarily like Waco then? No, no, no. We don't have a
1: Waco situation on our hands. All right. The detectives were having a difficult time trying to get a judge to sign a warrant for the monastery, because, well, there was just no probable cause. But soon, they wouldn't have to. On April 19, 1995, just 35 minutes away from Guthrie, the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building was bombed by Timothy McVeigh and his accomplice, Terry Nichols, at 9.02 a.m. 168 people died, and over 680 were injured. That building and 258 others were damaged or destroyed in the bombing, which caused right around $652 million worth of damage. Now, McVeigh was quickly tied to the attack, but Linda was convinced that because of the Waco incident that had recently taken place, that the Samaritans would be blamed for the event.
2: What, Oklahoma, uh, the Oklahoma City bombing?
1: Correct. She thought that even though McVeigh was in custody, they were because she was paranoid that they were going to tie that event to the Samaritan group because they were in close vicinity to Oklahoma City.
2: I mean, I have to, I have to say, I mean, that's not out of the realm of possibility, considering the fact that they've been trying to gain entry.
1: Correct, and then the Waco situation. Right. Yeah. I,
2: mean, I mean, she is a, a little bit of a, a loony. But, I mean, that right there could be a possibility. Yeah,
1: it's, it's probably the mo- one of the things that makes more sense than anything else. Well,
2: out of everything she has said, this yeah. is the only thing that could be true. Yeah. Instead of this impending doom and apocalypse that she keeps talking about. Correct.
1: So she was convinced that the government was watching them. And for their own protection, she said they all had to temporarily disband. They were all ordered to go home.
2: Wow. And leave the prison. Yep. Oh, sorry. Monastery.
1: You didn't see that coming.
2: No, I did not.
1: So everyone left, but three very loyal members of the Samaritans and went back to their loved ones all over the country with promises to return to Linda once the dust has settled for guarding the Oklahoma City bombing. So like there were talks to come back to the monastery, but they had to lay low for a while, basically. So the three members that decided to stay were Alan Ross, Dennis Green, and Julia Williams. Now, the four of them had to figure out where they were going. So what better way to find an answer to a question than dousing? Absolutely. Linda doused a map and the pendulum pointed to Cheyenne, Wyoming. Using money from Julia's trust fund, they bought a two-family house in Cheyenne and moved in right away. Now, this is a very interesting turn of events because this isn't something that happens often. The cult disbanded. Now, Linda's most loyal followers are still with her, but their experience with her is going to change. The dynamic of this house was toxic to say the least. Linda continued her tailspin. Her paranoia was at its height, the highest it had ever been. She thinks the government is after her. And now, for the first time in over three years, she doesn't have the power over a group of individuals that she once had. It was that power and the ability to control every aspect of people's lives that fed her ego. But now her ego was only being fed by three other people. I feel
2: like this is like a recipe for disaster now. Yes. she's gonna. I feel like she's going to have like a nervous break. Well, not nervous, but she's going to have a breakdown for sure.
1: Well, it's definitely going to change the relationship dynamic that exists because Julia and Dennis are going to remain dedicated to Linda and her mission. But Alan was starting to see his new partner in a different light, stripped of the atmosphere at the monastery and the power she could exercise over the Samaritans Linda was beginning to lose her luster for Alan. Cult leaders are not so cool without their cults.
2: Very true. Mm-hmm. And you see he's on the chopping block because this is the M.O. Like she got rid of one, got another guy. And now she wants another guy. Right. I knew it.
1: Linda deals with this new stressor in her life by consuming a lot of alcohol. And Alan begins to see Linda... For what she really was, just a human that makes a lot of mistakes and not the supernatural being that she was projecting back in Guthrie. So for the first time in a very long time, Alan is thinking that he wants to leave, but he knows that that is not going to be easy.
2: Yeah, I mean, she controls every aspect of these people's lives. Also, I wonder if she used the pendulum to figure out what alcohol she was drinking.
1: That's that's a really good question. A nice nice aside. You snuck that in at the end there.
2: I did. (laughs) (laughs) Food for thought.
1: (laughs) So we're at the point where Alan's realizing, okay, I think I need to get out of here. And I think him being outside of the monastery in real life situations with this spiritual leader living in a two family house with his girlfriend's ex-husband and her obsessed fan made him realize I kind of like my old life better. And he just had gotten more out of his old life. Like the spirituality that he was seeking. I'm sure he found more on being in various continents and on filming locations versus being stuck in a, limestone prison built in 1892
2: yeah also we're forgetting one major thing here in alan's life and that is no matter where he was doing whatever he always returned home and that is something that i think maybe helped him get through things maybe was a good support system to know if anything goes wrong or if i need if you know people around me i can go home and he he didn't have that because he was just staying there
1: Right. But now that he's kind of outside that world, I think like what you're saying is is becoming true of him Is he's realizing like kind of like my own life a little bit better. Yeah. Well, an opportunity arose for him to get out of the house in Cheyenne when he's contacted by an old friend in the fall of 1995. Christian Bauer was a German filmmaker who had worked on seven films with Alan. They were kindred spirits who shared a love for filmmaking and living life a little differently than others did. Alan had been very excited to hear from Christian, like a blast from his past. And Christian, knowing Alan had not worked in some time, was unsure whether or not he was going to be on board. But he asked him if he wanted to do some camera work for him on a documentary that he was making about the Mississippi River. And to his surprise, Alan said yes.
2: I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. A way to get back into the swing of things, you know, maybe, you know, get some money, improve your career.
1: Right. So we are unaware of the exact details involved regarding Alan telling Linda about leaving for the project or under what circumstances he told her he was leaving. But he set out for St. Louis, the first filming location. It was there that Alan came to life again, doing what he loved with an old friend and talented colleague. And I'm sure, and this is me just assuming here, that he must have been able to realize, now removed completely from the situation, how maybe ridiculous his time at the monastery with the Samaritans was. And that maybe he had gotten swept up in the hysteria of it all. Because groupthink is dangerous. And to all the others that were at these various filming locations that they were on, down the Mississippi River, it seemed like Alan had made the choice that he was not going to be returning to Cheyenne. And that could be dangerous for him.
2: I mean, yeah. I I mean, he is right, though, about the groupthink, right? I mean, that's a way of holding you down and keeping you there. But by them being in Wyoming and there only being a couple people there, I mean, that also limits the control that, that she had And the fact that he just left on his own, I mean, it really does show a very big step forward.
1: I completely agree. And I think that Alan is starting to think for himself again. And and like that whole free-spirited nature is coming back to him. And like life is being breathed back into this man. And he did it because he was doing what he loves, his filmmaking.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you know, think about it. Anybody that was in there, they were deprived of the things that they did for years before they got there. Also, I'm nervous to see if there's ramifications for him leaving.
1: Well, there are. Because while filming in New Orleans, Julia Williams had managed to track Alan down. She and Linda showed up at a filming location to the surprise of Alan. His friend Christian, in an interview with NBC, said Linda had shown up as they were wrapping up filming in New Orleans And he was shocked to see her because no one had ever met this mystery woman that had taken Alan away. He said that Linda was not what he expected her to be. Not worldly, beautiful, or intelligent, like I'm sure he thought she was going to be. Instead, he described her as being demanding and controlling. He said that Alan seemed to be embarrassed by her presence and the scene she was causing. She grabbed for his camera and he moved to take her out of the shot. Christian heard him tell her to stay away from them and instead Linda moved back into the frame and danced as if mocking him and the work he was trying to do. Once the scene was completed, Alan walked off to talk to Linda who was standing by her vehicle with Julia in the front seat. The entire crew saw him get into a screaming match with Linda but then they saw him get into the car with the two women and drive away. He never returned to the set after that. In fact, that was the last time that they ever saw Alan Ross again.
2: That's crazy. So what do they do?
1: They had to continue just filming and they they had to go on without Alan.
2: I mean, so he did go on his own accord. He didn't. Yeah. Okay, he was probably just trying to save himself the embarrassment. Yeah, like, let of me get the, out of yeah, here. Yeah, of the whole thing that was taking place there.
1: Because he probably knew that she could go off, and he didn't want that to happen in front of the filming crew that he'd been working with for months at that point.
2: Also, how did she
1: find him? Julia Williams was able to track him down.
2: Uh, that's crazy to me that she was able to do that. Yeah. You would think she would have had to, known, to know something before he left.
1: Well, I think I, from what I could find out is that they knew that he was leaving to go on a filming locations along the Mississippi River. So really, I mean, it just makes sense. That's where they would end up in New Orleans at the end.
2: I'm just saying, talk about, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes here.
1: Maybe they doused it.
2: Maybe they doused it because you know what? Think about that. They're living in Wyoming at this point, correct? Yes. So they're coming fr- from Wyoming all the way down to New Orleans. Correct. That's not like a short journey. Well,
1: maybe they had followed him a little bit. So we I don't mean, really know. that's also possible.
2: Yeah, it's possible.
1: So where we left off, Alan kind of just left the filming location, but he had to be paid for his work. So a few weeks later, someone representing Christian contacted Alan in regards to to his payment for the work that he did do on the project. So they were able to actually speak with Alan and get his information so that the money could be wired to him. Christian tried to follow up this phone call to make sure Alan got his money, but he never got a reply. He tried for weeks to call his friend to find out what had happened to him and if he was all right. Alan's family was going through the same thing. Since Alan had moved to Cheyenne, um, they had spoken with him sporadically, but now they weren't receiving anything from him at all. And most ominously, the birthday that Alan shared with his twin brother Brad came and went without any word from Alan, not even a postcard. So it was abundantly clear by November of 1995 that Alan Ross was missing.
2: I mean, that's pretty crazy. What also is insane is that you, your mind goes into these crazy places. Well, if he's not there to answer the phone and you can't hear from him again, what's going on? Are they holding him hostage somewhere? Like That's really scary.
1: Very scary. You don't, you don't know what's happening. But because of his involvement with the Samaritans, they are assuming that that has to do with it. So, Alan's friends and family began to panic. Brad went to Cheyenne to file a missing persons report for his 42-year-old brother. But things got complicated from there. There really wasn't too much that the police in Cheyenne were able to do. He was an adult, and he was allowed to go missing. There were no clear signs that he was in any imminent danger. They suggested that Brad might want to go to the police in Guthrie because they were more familiar with the Samaritans and what he was talking about. So he did but the police in Guthrie said there was even less that they could do because Alan didn't really reside there anymore, nor did the Samaritans. So I know it doesn't make any sense that nothing could be done, but in reality, no laws had been broken. At this point, there were two theories that existed between Alan's loved ones. Either he was killed because he was trying to leave the cult, or he had fled the group and was in hiding until things cooled down. And they prayed that the latter was true. Two of Alan's friends, Christian, the one that he had done the film with, and Galen, a friend from Chicago that he had been close to, um, left to go to Guthrie to try and speak with members of the Samaritans that still resided in the area. But they were met with hostility, either because the members were trying to get away from Linda And didn't want to be in any part of looking for Alan because they just kind of wanted the Samaritans to be in their past. Or because they were still loyal to her. So they left feeling dejected and with no answers. But their conversations with members still living around the old monastery got back to all the other members that were still in communication with each other. And that is what must have caused the police in Cheyenne to get a phone call from Dennis Green. Dennis told police that his ex-wife, Linda, had killed Alan Ross. He said that he had left the two-family home that he was living in with Linda and Julia and, at one point, Alan, because it wasn't a good environment and their drinking had become excessive. Well, Dennis said to the police that Linda had told him that she shot Alan twice during a heated argument.
2: That This is nuts. I mean, but it, and what's so sad is they can't even confirm this because nobody's coming out to saying it. The only one that has said something is the ex-husband. Right. But I mean, how credible is it? They don't know. They can't even go and check.
1: Right. I mean, this is a story coming from someone that also has motive to kill Alan. Exactly. But this is something that the Cheyenne Police Department can investigate. At this point, Linda and Julia had moved to New Orleans, and the house that they had once lived in with Dennis Green and Alan Ross was now abandoned. So they performed a search of the property. However, nothing was found. No body, no evidence of foul play. They even go to speak with Linda at her new home And what she had to say was interesting as well. She said that without the Samaritans around, uh, Dennis was not living with her any longer. Dennis was actually in Colorado building another property for Linda. But all in all, he'd kind of lost his dedication to the group and her, um, especially because she was living with Alan and they were spiritual partners and that the jealousy that Dennis felt for Alan really came to a head while they were living together for a short period of time in the Cheyenne house. And it was actually Dennis that killed him.
2: So this is interesting. We have two sides here blaming each other correct, for the murder of Alan.
1: Right. We have not one shred of evidence, not even a body and two people blaming each other. So there's really nothing they can do about that. And eventually they had to drop the investigation because Until there was a new piece of evidence, there was nothing to investigate. And that's where the missing persons case of Alan Ross stayed for years. The only investigation that took place was done by Alan's friends and his brother. In fact, Christian was recording a lot of the search that he was doing with the two because he was planning on eventually making a documentary about his search for Alan, which he did end up making. It's called Finding Alan. So it had gotten back to Linda that they were doing this. And in early 2000, she reached out to Christian and Galen and told them that she was interested in talking to them. They expressed their interest, but told her that they wanted to bring cameras with them. And she agreed to be filmed.
2: See, that right there is something very different than what she used to be like. Think about it. She wouldn't even let the police come into the uh the, the monastery. Right. They'd, she said, no, get a warrant, come back. And now she's just so, like, it's easy for her to just be like, yeah, come oh, on maybe- in, bring bring some cameras. It's almost like it's done on purpose. Yeah.
1: So Alan's two friends that had been desperately trying to find answers for four years were going to get a sit down they went to visit linda at the house she lived in with julia williams in new orleans the two friends described their time speaking with and filming linda as intense and troubling the interview that was done with her was held in the back garden of her well julia's home linda appeared to be in her own world she was obviously drunk she had been ravished by alcohol addiction. Her paranoia was obvious as she went off on her delusional tangents. When Christian finally was able to get her to focus on what they had gone there for, Alan, Linda told them that Dennis is, and I quote, a piece of shit to this day. I will tell the camera the truth, she went on. My sorrow is so great, I cannot measure the sorrow. Alan was murdered by Dennis Green. As she spoke those words, she puffed aggressively on her cigarette and almost snarled at the camera. She went on to explain that as soon as Dennis was no longer alpha male, he wanted to kill Alan. After Alan's friends were able to get this information, Alan's brother Brad was convinced that the answers to his brother's disappearance lie within the Cheyenne home that he shared with Linda, Julia, and Dennis. No matter who killed him, the answers had to be there. He begged the Cheyenne Police Department to search the house again. He was eventually able to convince a lieutenant to complete the search in July of 2000. The lieutenant searched the home on July 15th and again found nothing. He saved the search of the basement for last. The basement of the old home was damp and hot, The floor was mostly dirt and it was completely empty. There was no light source so the detective was holding up his camera. As he wandered around the space he noticed that there was a room a crawl space at the back of the basement and it was odd because there was a thin layer of cement there. Within the crawl space he saw a high-topped Converse shoe sticking out.
2: First of all What you just said to me, like, shocked me to my core because it's, like, every scary... Like, I had goosebumps for a second because it's, like, every crazy horror movie. Yeah. No light. You know, he's using a camera or a flashlight to look around the area. And to see that is terrifying. Not to mention, it's not... I don't feel like it's normal to have dirt basements.
1: No, it's not. But it's a very old home.
2: Yeah. So and then to have this like secret wall that's like partially covered with like concrete that's scary well
1: the the floor of the crawl space had a thin layer of concrete over it so it's like if you don't have concrete on your basement floor why do you need a layer of concrete in your crawl space and then the high top converse shoe that he always wore
2: that's that's crazy
1: So now um, the lieutenant called Brad and asked whether or not his brother owned Converse tennis shoes. Now I can only imagine the feelings that washed over Brad in that moment because that was really all his brother ever wore. Brad confirmed with him that he did and the lieutenant said he would call him back. He pulled the shoe thinking it would come out of the crawl space and with it came bones then he went to his car to retrieve like a small shovel that he had and he basically unearthed a human skeleton in the basement
2: that's terrifying and i and like how could you you could never forget that
1: no that as
2: a as the police officer anyway that will always be ingrained in your mind
1: but you also found answers for this family which is like the only good reprieve of it all and it's kind of like fascinating like I don't know the condition like obviously during this well during the first search the house was abandoned so why wasn't this found on the first search it's kind of you know it's upsetting that that the house wasn't searched well enough the first time I mean,
2: that's true I mean maybe they just thought you know dirt basement no, you know there's nothing down there I don't know or but something
1: it, was like in the way in of the it way,
2: maybe or it just wasn't in sight. Cause he obviously this cop obviously went down there and looked all over the place. Maybe yeah. they went down there but they weren't checking
1: Right. You know, right. maybe
2: there wasn't adequate light. I don't know. Because it was dark for even this officer. Oh sudden. yeah, it was.
1: Now later DNA tests would confirm that this was the body of Alan Ross. Brad said that when he found out that his brother's body had been found the emptiness that consumed him was just replaced by another kind of emptiness, and in that moment he knew that his brother was gone. The coroner's report confirmed that Alan's cause of death was murder. Someone had been standing above and slightly behind him when they shot him in the head with a 9 millimeter So now it was confirmed that Alan was murdered, and it was the job of the Cheyenne Police Department to find out who had done it. And Linda and Dennis Green were both at the top of that list. Detectives went to speak to both Dennis and Linda, who was still living with Julia. Dennis, of course, continued to blame his ex-wife. When they visited Linda and Julia, they were confronted with a bizarre scene. Both women were clearly very intoxicated and behaving strangely. They were not even able to get the women to answer their questions. They left after telling the women that they should not leave the location where they were staying in case they needed to come back and speak with them again. After the initial interviews were conducted of both suspects, law enforcement got the full report from the coroner. They believed that there was a very strong possibility that Alan Ross had been posthumously castrated.
2: Seriously? Seriously?
1: Now, this revelation could point to both suspects in reality. If Dennis were jealous of Alan and what he was doing with Linda, that makes sense. But it could also have been a part of Linda's cult ritual. Back in Guthrie at the monastery, Linda always preached that the coming apocalypse would turn people into zombies. And how do you prevent a man from becoming a zombie? or kill him if he is a zombie well this isn't the walking dead so it's not a stab wound to the brain it's castration
2: yeah because that makes sense that makes
1: total sense yeah so uh, this kind of goes into what Linda's beliefs were if you want to stop someone from becoming a zombie they become you castrate them
2: this is so bizarre and this poor guy
1: I know now i do not know about female zombies but the male zombies were supposed to get castrated so yeah. now but now it's like okay would dennis do that because linda said that so like it doesn't mean it's definitely linda but it means that it the cult somebody from the cult most likely did it
2: that is interesting i mean who's to say that it's dennis i mean if dennis was like doing his own thing He was, you know, you know, he obviously was forgotten about. I mean, yeah, that's motive for him to kill Alan. But to take orders from Linda to do it, I don't think that that's uh, necessarily a possibility. I don't know.
1: Well, the investigation into Alan's death went cold for years because there was no other piece of physical evidence that connected anyone to the crime. But the case would get renewed interest in 2002 when Cheyenne detectives received a call from Julia Williams. She called to let them know that Linda Green had died of liver failure as a result of her alcoholism. Apparently, Linda had been admitted into a psychiatric facility. Apparently, Linda had been admitted into a psychiatric facility a few years prior, where her doctors suggested that she might have suffered from paranoid schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Which goes to explain the intense paranoia and maybe voices and bad entities that she did experience because they oh. were part of her delusions, maybe.
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. It's very possible. Yep. And it got worse and worse because, listen, if I'm not mistaken, um, if it goes unchecked without any medication, it can get worse, right?
1: Well, yeah, it can go It can get worse if it's untreated and if everyone's feeding into your delusions as well. Yeah. So she also told them that she was ready to tell them what happened to Alan Ross. And this is Julia Williams. She said that she had been home upstairs in her room when she heard a gunshot go off. She ran downstairs and saw that Dennis had shot Alan. She admitted that she had helped Dennis bring Alan's body to the basement where he buried him. They, of course, informed her that law enforcement would be headed to um, Louisiana to pick her up and take her back to Oklahoma, and she went voluntarily with them. Julia Williams was charged with being an accessory after the fact to the unlawful killing of a human being. Because she pled not guilty, she faced trial in November of 2004, where prosecutors made it their mission not only to convict Julia, but also to find out the truth about what happened to Alan. Was it really Dennis who killed him? Because if that's the case, they're going to charge Dennis with his murder. And that's what Julia is saying happened. But the story that Julia told didn't make sense if you analyzed it. And if you investigated it, it was impossible. During the trial of Julia Williams, many interesting pieces of evidence were presented that painted Julia out to be a bit of a liar during her confession to law enforcement. It seemed that even in death, Linda had a hold over Julia. She was trying to clear her leader's name. So based on the information that came out at trial, it seemed after Alan left the house to work on the documentary, his friend was filming, Linda and Julia became convinced that someone or a group of people were working to mess with and steal from Linda's business called Amber Press. Now, Amber Press was a publishing company that they had set up so Linda could publish books about dowsing. While Alan was away, because, of course, he had abandoned her at this point, Linda and Julia became convinced that Alan and two other former members of the cult that also left were stealing from them because they had to make them the enemies, right? So this may have been what prompted that unexpected visit from the two women at Alan's filming location, the one from which he left with them. Then, about one month later, in November of 1995, Linda and Julia became convinced that someone was trying to poison them. Now, keep in mind, this is also the month that Alan is murdered. Now, we also find out through the testimony of Dennis Green that he actually had not lived long term in the house in Cheyenne. In fact, he only lived there for about a month when Linda and Julia purchased a very large plot of land in Colorado. They also purchased an RV for Dennis to live in with the son that they shared together. And during his testimony, he revealed that he was kind of building this cabin for Julia and Linda and they were kind of looking because the property was very large 160 acres and like they kind of wanted their new compound to be there and that's what Dennis was supposed to be building but while they would come out and visit and while Alan was away on his filming location Julia and Linda told Dennis that they thought that Alan was actually having an affair with Christian his friend which wasn't true And it really seems like they just wanted to besmirch Alan's name in whatever way they could, because he was slipping away from Linda's grasp.
2: I mean, that makes sense.
1: So we also, during Dennis's testimony, get the full story of the day of November 22nd. So this is the day that Alan was murdered. Dennis said that he went back to the Cheyenne house to pick up his son. And because he was staying there. While Dennis was there he was helping Alan fix something in the house. While they were working, Linda and Julia approached them and stated that they were headed back to Cheyenne because they wanted to sell the monastery and other rental properties that Julia had in the area. Dennis said this was something that Alan had gotten upset about because he had valuables at those locations and he didn't want to lose them, uh, particularly cameras, like really expensive cameras. Dennis said that after the women walked out of the room, Alan asked his advice about what kind and size of vehicle he would need to haul his belongings and equipment back to Chicago. So Alan had clearly expressed to Dennis that he wanted to leave and go back home. And before he left, Alan even confided in Dennis. So see, with them working together and confiding in each other, I don't feel like there was really bad blood between the two men. Alan said, you have to watch out because Julia is planning on doing something bad to you and your son.
2: See, so this doesn't sound like another one man getting mad at another man or holding a grudge and then killing them in cold blood. Correct. This seems like they were kind of friends. Right. At least, you know, like a confidant here, because I mean, they're talking about some serious crap,
1: you know, and trying to help each other. Exactly. It seems like this is one person who got out, basically, who safely got out of Linda's circle. Someone that's in the circle saying, how do I get to where you are? Correct. So hours later, Dennis left the Cheyenne house with his son. On their way home, they stopped at Joe's Hardware Store on Lyon Street in Denver, Colorado, and the receipt was presented as evidence. He couldn't have killed him because he was already in Colorado that night. The son of Linda and Dennis, who was 18 at the time of the trial of Julia Williams, stated that he never saw his father have a gun, only his mother. In fact, he knew that his mother always carried a 9 millimeter in her purse. And Dennis testified to this as well. Both of them said that at one point, um, Linda had been upset with them about something and the RV in Colorado had been locked and she wanted to get in. So she actually shot at the lock. So she was pretty trigger happy. So the circumstances are, Linda was the one who had the gun, the one who was mad at Alan. And Dennis has an alibi in his son, the receipt, and it was also revealed during the trial that a nosy neighbor, which I'm sure Dennis is grateful for now, kept a record book of when things happened in the neighborhood and she marked down that Dennis returned to his property at six oh six PM on the twenty second.
2: That's actually great record keeping. <laughs> yes and for no, a neighbor. <laughs> yes.
1: And strange. And she puts my nosy neighbor status like to shame.
2: Uh yeah, one hundred percent.
1: And it was Linda who had also said that to prevent a zombie, one had to castrate a man.
2: Well, that kind of ties into the autopsy.
1: Right. So, I mean, I think that the argument is very strong that Linda was the one who killed Alan.
2: Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I think that she, I think it's fair to say she was a little unhinged. Yeah. You know, she might have been suffering from schizophrenia and she wasn't medicated. Um, You know, she did have a gun. There's eyewitness testimony. There's there's evidence to kind of corroborate Dennis's story.
1: And that Alan wanted to leave. So what I think is they got into an argument about Alan wanting to leave. And as he was on the ground, you know, maybe packing, she shot him. Because that would even explain the trajectory of the bullet.
2: Yeah, no, it would. And then... Because
1: he was a tall guy.
2: Yeah. And then Julia, I mean, Julia just wants... She'll do anything for her, even in death. So you really have to just take that with a grain of salt. Right.
1: Well, at the end of the trial, Julia was found guilty of accessory after the fact to the killing of a human being. And she was sentenced to 18 months in prison. Uh, Linda Brown had passed away from her alcoholism so she was never able to answer for the crime of the killing of Alan Ross and that's that's sad I mean you know I don't think there was ever going to be closure to the family because they had lost such a great spirit in losing Alan but at least the truth is out about what happened to him and his body could be laid to rest but it's it's just so unfortunate and it it goes to show you that people can get swept up in these Worlds of these these cults or these groups, because you know they're they're searching for something and then they get taken advantage of because of that, and this was just a whirlwind this case,
2: yeah, I mean, look I you know it's it's horrible what happened to him, what happened to Alan, but you know you know he was a free spirit, and he you know did what he wanted to do, he got to experience a lot. And unfortunately, these are the things that can happen sometimes when you get roped in, like you said, to these cults and these other people who share similar ideas. But he was smart enough to realize that if he continued down that path, it wasn't going to be good. And he didn't want to be there anymore. So it's really sad that, you know, his life is taken from it, you know, just because he just wanted to go back to what he loved.
1: I completely agree with you. So that concludes our case on Alan Ross. But before we go, we do want to thank our new supporters on Patreon. We thank you so much for your donations and we hope you're enjoying all of the episodes that are available. So we just want to thank Amanda Winters, Erie Ava, Kim Major, Paula Petner, Lisa Zahi, Christian Guerra, Heather Craft, Anne Reimer. Poindexter, Susan Cluck, Alyssa Dokus, Kristen Minnis upped her pledge to $10, Kathleen Boltovsky, Latte Librarian upped her pledge to $10, and Sherry Arnold joined Patreon as we were recording this episode. So thank you guys. We really appreciate everything that you are donating, and we hope that you're enjoying everything. And we have next week Patreon episode 59 coming at you, which is a really exciting one, too. Bye, guys. Bye.